Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, good morning. Let's do that again. Good morning. I see that you're doing well this morning, and we're glad that you're with us. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Pastor Craig, and uh, we're really glad that you joined us here in week three of a series that we've been in called Too Loved to Be Lost. Now, if you look at the graphic there behind me, you realize that, I don't know if you've ever received this response when you talk to someone about the gospel and attempt to share God's good news. You've got, well, you don't understand, I'm too lost to be found. Well, the reality of that is, is no, you're actually too loved to be lost. And we've been studying about the love of God. And not just studying the love of God, but experiencing. And here's what I've learned about a 21st century culture. You heard that in the video? Is that we are experiential culture. That means the next generation is tweeting, they're Facebook living, they're Instagram, they're Snapchatting. And then we expect them to come into church sometimes and never have any experience and just level, kind of lecture level type learning. But the reality of it is, truth sometimes taught is forgotten. But let me tell you something. Truth that is experienced is never forgotten. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So we can experience Jesus today. How many of you experienced him already this morning? Come on, just a show of hands. Amen. So we encounter his presence and his goodness, and uh, we're just so glad you're with us. I want to encourage you, uh, if you're a lady with us, Ladies Craft Night coming up September 9th. That's just one of our other groups that we do. It's $30. You say, $30? Well, listen, that's covering not only your lunch or your dinner that night, some snacks, coffee, and then you're actually going to make a piece of art. If you follow us on Facebook, you saw we posted this week that you'll take home, and you don't have to have any major expertise and art. It's called Truth Be Told Art. The company's coming in, and uh, you can sign up at the Next Steps table, and uh, I mean, it's like better than Hobby Lobby, you know what I'm saying? Fellowship, and, and also get to make a piece of art. So you need to do that. that uh, when you register $30, that'll reserve your spot, and uh, also we have prayer this Tuesday night if you're interested in being a part of that group. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14 is where we're going to direct our attention today. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, I think everyone has, but you can raise your hand. And uh, just a reminder again, also this message is on the YouVersion app on your smartphone to click on Dwelling Place. But I want to start in Matthew 14. I want to jump in and read two verses of Scripture in our hearing. And uh, let me give you a little bit of context of what's taking place. Jesus is in a very difficult place. His forerunner, which was also his cousin, John the Baptist, has just been beheaded. His head has been decapitated by Herod, King Herod. And although he did it reluctantly, he still did it. King Herod cut off John the Baptist's head. He was one night at a party. He was pleased by a dancer. He told the dancer, I'll give you whatever you ask, half the kingdom. And Herodias' daughter goes to her mother, and the mother convinces her and sways her to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the next morning, John the Baptist's head comes into the room there on this platter. And so... As you think about this story, just from a context from the get-go, I mean, Jesus then gets word, we're going to see this, and he gets out of Dodge. Why? Because John's gospel said his hour of glorification had not yet come. That means he knew it was not his time. It was not his time. He couldn't be made king yet. He wouldn't be coronated by the people, and he certainly wasn't going to the cross yet. He had this eternal mindset. Now, no doubt, not only Jesus was escaping the possible conflict, he also was hurting. 
You can imagine the forerunner of Jesus literally not just killed but beheaded, right? I mean, he's hurting personally. He's hurting emotionally. He's probably even hurting spiritually. He's lost a dear friend. And so we pick up Jesus in this emotional state. This is Jesus in the emotional state of hearing what had happened to his cousin. Verse 13. When Jesus heard it, what heard news of what had happened, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Now he's on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum has become and overtaken his headquarters from Nazareth, as Nazareth, as you see about the third chapter of the, of the book. And he now lives there right on the Sea of Galilee. He leaves to try to go to the other side, this area called the Decapolis. In fact, this is where the region of Gamaria in Mark 6, where the guy was demon-possessed and cutting himself and breaking chains. And, and Jesus sets him free. And, uh, and this is a, a deserted place. It's a place where no one would be. But the Bible says when the multitudes heard it, they, they followed him on foot from the cities. They walked around the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus went out, he saw, everybody say he saw. Notice that. He saw a great multitude and he was moved. Everybody say he was moved. Notice this. He was moved with compassion for them. Now notice this word compassion is indeed the emotion of the gospel. In fact, if we lack compassion for people around us, it's due to the fact that we have Fail to remind ourselves or remember just how far God brought us out of the miry clay. He had compassion on them. Notice this. And the Bible says he ultimately healed their sick. Now, interesting enough, if you look there with me at that text, verse 24, he was moved with compassion. There are five times Jesus said this. I was meeting with a pastor this week um, at his hands church, Justin McTeer, and, and uh, good guy. We were in our conversation and just talking about uh, being moved and seeing the way Jesus sees. Preached a message uh, just a few months ago about this very thing. And, and I was talking to him, and he said, you know what? Jesus was moved with compassion a lot. Doesn't that find itself uh, reoccurring in the Gospels? And I said, yeah, it actually does. Five times. Five times in the Gospels, Jesus was moved with compassion. In other words, this incredible, um, incredible major, huge feeling of empathy, compassion that Jesus feels, he feels right here in this context. Notice the number five is the number of grace. No incident here that we see the grace of God being moved in his compassion. Now notice he is moved. And then the Bible says, comma, notice this, look at it. And after he was moved with compassion for them, and Jesus healed their sick. Now notice it doesn't say that he healed the righteous sick. It doesn't say that he healed the grateful sick. It doesn't say that he healed the holy sick. It doesn't say that he healed the devoted sick. It doesn't say that he healed the faithful sick. He just healed their sick. Notice that. Now what I want you to do is rewind with me a couple chapters. And there's so many texts we can look at. But go to Matthew chapter 4 with me. And I want you to see Jesus in this text. Matthew chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. We're going to read two verses again in our hearing. Verse 23 and verse 24, and Jesus went about all Galilee. That's all of the cities that were on the Sea of Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing. Now notice how many times the word all appears. Healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. The Bible says among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon possessed and those who were epileptics, and those who were paralytics, and he healed them. Not believing sick people, no. Not good sick people, he healed all of them. Interesting observation to make right here from the outset of this message. 
that there is not one time in the Gospels and not one point where sick people came to Jesus desiring to be healed that he did not heal them. You can't find one verse in the entire New Testament where someone desired to be healed and Jesus didn't heal them. He healed every single one of them. And yet still today there are Christians wondering whether or not Jesus wants to heal them. I talk to them every day. Wondering whether or not Jesus really desires to bring a healing touch to their life. Well, let me tell you, good friends, brothers and sisters, the answer has been granted to us in the Gospels. And the answer is a resounding, emphatic yes. He does indeed want to heal. I want to speak for this topic this morning, God's love works. Did you say it with me? God's love works. And let me ask you a question. If God's love works and God gave his son, God would rather not be God than be God without us. He gave over his son for our sins. If that's true and we don't read the text from this I was taught to read the Bible from this pious kind of distance and don't let it really affect you. No, no. If you actually investigate that, that if he really loves you and he loves all people, that his desire, he gave his son, that all, right, should come to repentance in life. Let me ask you this question. If Jesus knows those that would never reciprocate that love, is it wasteful for him to do this? Another way we could say that is, is Jesus squandering his love? Can he squander his love? Let's pray. Father, in these few moments we have, would you allow the love of God just to permeate our hearts? Let us encounter you today, God. I pray we'd experience your truth. And Lord, that you would open our hearts, Holy Spirit, our ears and our eyes, God. Holy Spirit, would you just now move this, on this room and just arrest our attention, God. Indeed, Lord, just allow us to be arrested, our attention upon you, Jesus. Our mind's attention, our heart's affection on you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, how many married people in the room? We got a couple married people. How many want to be married? There you go. How many want to be married really, really badly? Don't do it. Don't do it. Nah. <laughs> Amen, Zay. Amen, brother. In marriage, you know, I've done lots of marriage, premarital counseling. In marriage, there are some words that they teach you at the beginning of your marriage counseling that you are never to use. And if you didn't, Learn them in your marriage counseling. You learned them at about night three, all right? These words are to never be used. It's words like never. I call them absolutes, explicatives. Words like always. You're never to use the word always. Words like fat. In fact, you're supposed to never use always and fat together. That's the biggest no-no, okay? You can never use those in tandem. You can use the word never fat. You know, how do I look, babe? Oh, never fat. You know, that works. <laughs> fat never, never fat. But you can't use always and fat in the same deal, right? Then we, we use these words sometimes in absolutes that cause conversations to go even more south, Right? I mean, it's, it's, I'm guilty. I'm just be honest with you of using these terms in marriage. If my wife was here, she was here in our earlier gathering. She's with the, the children now. But I'm guilty of using these words in our marriage, particularly when, you know, the, when the, the, the heated moment comes. You know, it's like, you never, right? You always, right? And I'm like, oh, dear God, are you serious right now? Really? Okay, I'm going to pull out the counter and see if I always do that, right? Come on, let's pull it out. And then you get off course and you're arguing about something that wasn't even the, the point of the argument, right? Because you use these absolutes, right? Like my wife says, you always leave your clothes on the corner of the bed. And I do, folks. I do. I do all the time. You always leave your underwear on the ground. Can I just let you all in on a little secret, ladies? 
reason we do that is because that's part of what being a man is. What else would you want? Some sissy, weak-willed man that folded up his underwear night neatly and put it in a drawer? I mean, come on. I mean, that's what it means to be a man. Flick that thing off, go in the shower. Yeah, that's right. But I always leave my clothes. I do because I wear those jeans day after day after day after day. Who in the, that's right. Who in the world is going to wash them after turn one? They're just now getting loosened up. You know what I'm saying? And I suppose in marriage, you always, you never, we, we reason, they teach us not to use those always or never in marriage is the reason to never use the word never and, and to always never use always is because what you're doing is you're inflicting the past performance of your spouse on their present. You're inflicting the past performance of how they've done and presuming that they'll do it in the present and that they'll always do it in the future. I'm assuming this is how you'll function. And then you start dropping the words like always and never and it gets bad, right? And then you start saying, really, really? You know, Knox told me yesterday, I never make mistakes. That's what he told me in the back seat. I said, what did you just say? I never make mistakes. Tell, you know, do you want me to right now just start naming off the mistakes, you know? Come on, humility. I beat it into him, you know? Or, or he's caught red-handed like I am sometimes. You always do that, right? Which, by the way, guys, if she ever gets an argue with you, argument with you, her about always or never, please just go ahead and surrender the white flag, okay? Because you can't remember what you ate for dinner. She remembers what you wore in 1982 on March 13th at 1242. You know what I'm saying? There is no chance to win that. You know? Really? Name one time. Well, I don't feel like it right now. Come on, I may ever use that. I don't really feel like it. It wouldn't help. It wouldn't be fruitful if I brought it up. Love keeps no record of wrongs. We're, we're told not to inflict the past on the present, right? In other words, leave some room. Leave some grace. We're going to change. People change. People grow. Don't inflict on your spouse their past performance. That's not how we are supposed to do. Give them space. Believe the best. Hope the best. Endure all things. Come on, 1 Corinthians 13, our favorite chapter on love. That's what marriage is supposed to look like. Is that how my marriage always looks? No, sir. We try. Those nevers. That's the goal. Now think about this for a minute. Just follow with me. As human beings, we do not have the ability to exercise foreknowledge. And we should be deeply grateful that we can't know the future of every situation. It would be utter chaos. Folks, I'm a pastor, all right? I can't even handle a feeling or a notion I have of someone without already jumping to a conclusion. Y'all ever deal with this? If I have an internet exchange with them and something that's off a little bit, I'm already jumping to conclusions and presuming this is the way they are and the way they'll always be. What if I had foreknowledge of actually what they would do? I would, I would treat people horribly, right? I mean, I would inflict that future on them all the time. Hey, how you doing, Pastor Craig? I'm just ticked, man, because, you know, like th three hours and 26 minutes from now, you are just going to absolutely stab me in the back. You know what? I don't even like you right now, right? I mean, we don't even have the ability as humans to understand foreknowledge, but God does. And foreknowledge, of course, is different from predestination. Predestination would mean that God preordained everything you did and you had no free will. Foreknowledge means that God sees all that you do. He's omniscient. In fact... I'll give you a quick illustration. If you and I were to go down here on Highway 92, and we stood right there on the north, going north on 575, the exit ramp. We stood there, and we looked out in front of us, and then big parade comes through. Back to school parade. They're coming up north, 575. They get off the exit on the ramp. They take a right and come down here to the church. If you were standing there on that parade, 
right in front of you as a human being, you would have a past, present, and future parade. You'd have a present that you see, the float in front of you. The past would be already down here to the church because that already passed you 10 minutes ago. And then you've got a future that's down at exit four. You have a past, you have a present, and a future. But if you're in the U-Haul blimp or the Goodyear blimp, all of it is in your present. That's why God sees your beginning from your end. Your first breath, your last breath, it's all in front of him. He has complete foreknowledge. He's the Alpha and he is the Omega. Now think about this just for a minute. Think about God. I have the ability to pass judgment on someone's future just by their past performance. People can change, but think about God for a moment. He has complete foreknowledge. He knows what you're going to do. And he overlooks your future. Oh yeah, he overlooks your past. We love that one. He overlooks your past, all things brand new in Jesus Christ. But he also overlooks your future. Why? To love you today, right now. To love you right now. If I was God, I'd be a bad God. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Because I would come to you and I would inflict your future on you all the time. I mean, I would. I'd be grumpy as all get out. You'd wake up on your 16th birthday and you're trying to relate to me as God. Hey, God, how you doing this morning? Oh, I'm not, not too good. Oh, well, God, I'm, it's my birthday. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you have no idea. What do you mean, God? Yeah, I've been kind of on a spiritual streak here. I haven't sinned in like 38 hours, God. It's like, it's a good day, God. And Yeah, you have no idea. If I told you three years from now, six years from now, 14, 14 days into January at 2.14 p.m., you're going to totally disappoint me. You're disgusting. I mean, I would never be able to handle that foreknowledge. But God knows. He knows. He has foreknowledge. I mean, notice this. The fact that God loves you today actually proves that he will love you tomorrow. God does not inflict our past, and God does not inflict our future on us. He simply loves us today. He loves us right now. What an amazing God. I read passages like this of Jesus, you know the two we just read in Matthew 14 where he healed all of these diseases. Think about this. He's healing an enormous amount of people. You read them so many times. I know I've read them so many times. Sometimes we just kind of pull away from them. But I started to think, think about this. The Bible said he healed all of the sick people they brought. That means he healed an enormous amount of people. And it's primarily insinuated here that Jesus healed a lot of sick people. You can't tell me that every one of those sick people that left healed left that place and lived the rest of their life in the beauty of holiness and the beauty of faithfulness. No, no. Jesus actually healed hands that would harm. Jesus actually healed hands that would hit other people. Jesus actually healed feet that would run away from his person. Jesus actually healed hearts that would be hardened to his gospel. Jesus actually healed people and eyes that would lust after women. Jesus actually healed eyes of women that would lust after other men. He healed all of them, the scripture said. He healed all of them. The rest of you sick people, Jesus didn't say, oh, it's better off that you stay sick because I know what you're going to do if I heal you three years from now, 16, you know, 16 days. You know, no, no, he didn't do that. The Bible says he healed all of them. I mean, think about this. It's like Jesus standing there. And he didn't line up in lines like the deserving, the faithful, the holy, the committed, the righteous. All right. Line number one, deserving. Are you going to be good? You better pinky promise me right now. You're going to be good if I heal you. If I touch you, you're going to heal me. You, you better be good. Are you, you're in the nice line. I'm, you, know, you know, all you naughties, you go over there, but you're in the nice line right here. Okay. Are you going to be good? He didn't do that. Promise me. All right, I already know you're going to be good because you're going to actually go win somebody for Jesus, you know, for me. So, yeah, come on. All right, healed next. He didn't do that. He healed all of them. Scripture said he healed all their diseases. He healed people that would run away from him. He healed people that would go off and continue to sin. Very clear. He healed feet that would run. He just healed 
everybody. Now, and if I was God, folks, you think Santa Claus is picky and keeping a list? You want to be healed, buddy? Yeah, my shoulder's kind of hurting, Lord. Yeah, it serves you well. Because if I healed it, you'd go off and, and do something. Yeah, you, yeah, it serves you well, buddy. Come on. Yeah, if I healed you and touched your shoulder. No, no. You know, it's like, man, this, this Jesus dude is totally mean. You know, it's like, what has gotten on to him? Why is he so mad? But think about it. He had every right, though, didn't he? Son of God, he had every right in the universe to look at a person and say, nope, I'm not going to heal you. Sorry, come another time. Sorry, not going to do it. And I don't know about you, but I hear Christians say, maybe I'm young and y'all know more than me, but just bear with me a minute. I've heard Christians say, well, you know God wanted, wanted sickness on this person and gave that person sickness to teach him a lesson. God gave him cancer, you know. Gave him cancer to teach him a lesson. Well, let me just tell you something. Where in the world is that in the Gospels and the life and ministry of Jesus? God giving somebody sickness, teach them a lesson. You know, I've never seen Jesus go to someone and, oh, yeah, we suffer. Oh, yeah, God's a God of divine reversal. But is God the author of suffering? Is God the author of the one who causes men to be sick? I mean, think about it. In the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Folks, God not only healed people who believed, he healed people who were literally corralled by other people. And before they knew it, they were in front of this man named Jesus. Are you Jesus? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you want to be healed? Uh, yeah, that'd be cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. I mean, it's like, it's like they didn't even come with faith i mean the man with it was literally lowered through the ceiling the bible says he's a paralytic the bible says his friends picked him up and creatively identified how do i get my spiritually paralyzed friend in the presence of jesus they get to the house the connect groom's booming on sunday night all of a sudden the bouncers of jesus are at the door and they say sorry sir you can't come here there's no more room and they say "Mm, in fact we will we're gonna climb this roof and they get up on top of the roof and while jesus is preaching they lower the man down right in front of him and he gets healed healed Indicative of no faith, no desire. I mean, there had to be people. So many people come without faith. And the Bible says people brought them. Well, if you were brought, where are we going? Don't worry about it. It's about to get better. Where are we going? Uh, don't worry about it. We're bringing you to a man. What's his name? He's a miracle worker. Don't worry. He's from, he's from Nazareth. He's been healing a lot of people. And all of a sudden, they bring him to Jesus. Hey, you want to be healed? Yeah. Woo, yeah, yeah. And then they leave. What about the 10 lepers? Remember in Luke 17? Remember Luke 17, 10 lepers? Jesus, the Bible says, has 10 guys with terminal illness. Leprosy was a social sin too because social sickness because you had to be in a leper's colony. Couldn't touch other people. It was a terminal illness. And Jesus knows that nine of them are not going to be grateful. He knows it. There's 10. He knows that not only are they not going to follow him, they're not even going to really recognize that he is who he is. So Jesus has a decision to make, and he knows there's only one who we would say in our business terms is worth the investment. Come on, just let me borrow it a minute. There's only one person that's worth the time, worth the focus, worth my energy, so he only heals one. No, that's not what the text says. He healed all of them. He touched all 10 of them and healed them. He says, you're all healed. And then he says, go show yourself to the priest. It's kind of like a trick commandment. And all 10 of them go running off. And one of them stops and is like, wait a minute. 
I don't want some priest. I want that guy. And he comes running back. He falls at the feet of Jesus, and he says, oh, you're amazing. Oh, thank you so much. And Jesus looks at him. He says, hey, um, where's the other nine guys? And he says, I don't know. And he says, you go find them and tell them their leprosy's coming back by God. It's coming back on them with a vengeance. They're, I'm going to send the sickness from the top of their head to the soles of their feet, right? No, he doesn't do that. And scholars believe that the one former leper that believed in Jesus that was saved literally changes the city. In fact, the greatest evangelist in the entire New Testament we see apart from the Apostle Paul in, in the time of the Gospels was the woman with the issue uh, of five husbands at the, the well. The Samaritan woman. She goes and tells her whole village. Right? I mean, this is God using these unlikely stories. He becomes a testimony. So listen, 90% of Jesus' healing ministry in that meeting rejected him. As soon as they got the healing, they took off. Some say if Jesus isn't a businessman, he's going out of business tomorrow. 90% expenditures, you're only getting 10% return. That is not a good business model. Not a good business model. Why heal them, Jesus? Let me think about that question. Why would you heal them? They won't even serve you. You know that. You know that. They're going to live selfish lives, and they're going to use those healthy bodies you gave them to go commit sin, and yet you're going to grant them health? Is this squandered power? Is this squandered love? Well, some people would say, yeah, it actually is. But I want you to be careful just for a moment with Scripture. Because for all the Scriptures that we find where people had faith and believed, there are also other Scriptures where people were literally dragged to Jesus, and before they know it, they're healed in the presence of the Son of God. And before we know it, what we do is we make kind of a, particularly in our charismatic world, right, we make kind of a process and potion and sell books like Seven Steps to Being Healed, and you got to pray this certain prayer and confess this certain prayer, and if you'll pray that, and you'll do this, and then that seven step will happen there, and, and then we create this process and potion that causes God to kind of be moved and touch you. No, no. What about all the surprise healings? How do you put that in a recipe? Surprise healing. See if that book will sell at Barnes & Noble. You just get kind of fall into Jesus' presence and he heals you and you leave. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's no recipe at all. There's no faith and there's no, there's no demonstration or followed step process at all. But Jesus heals the harmful. He serves the selfish. The question is, who in the world is this God? And why is he doing this? On the same note, one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, we've preached from multiple times, John chapter 11. The family that was closest to Jesus more than his, outside of his own familial family would be Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. They lived in a city called Bethany, right over the top of the Mount of Olives. It was where Jesus would get away from the religious leaders, and he would stay at Bethany a lot of times. They supported him, not only financially, they allow him in the home, you know, as the nomad he is, they allow him in the home, and he loved them. And the Bible says that Lazarus was sick, sick unto death. And the Bible says he died, and Jesus got word from the servants to come heal him. And the Bible says that Jesus stayed there four more days. Well, because in the Jewish culture, the fourth day, it meant that the spirit that hovered around the body for three days would leave altogether. And Jesus wanted to make sure everybody knew he was dead, dead. All right, you know what I'm saying? Not just dead, but dead, dead. If you've ever had a dead, dead situation, it's different than just being a dead situation. And, and, and Jesus literally comes into Bethany, and Mary and Martha are about to ha let him have it, right? And they come out to meet Jesus. And if you're in vacation Bible school and your parents or your teacher ever ask you to memorize a verse, just memorize this one. It's the shortest one in the entire Bible. John eleven thirty five. 35. The Bible says that Jesus wept. I was in a gospel of John class at seminary. We spent two full days on this one, one text. I mean, that's, that's a lot of hours. That's, that's five, five and a half, six hours on this text. And there was all kinds of talk and discussion about what's happening in this story. But the Bible says that Jesus wept. Now, here's the question. Why would Jesus weep? 
Lazarus is dead in the tomb. The stone's rolled in front of him. He's been dead four, four days. But the Bible says, if you read John 11, the beginning of this, right before verse 35, the Bible says, Jesus told the disciples, Lazarus is asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. So beyond the shadow of a doubt, we know that Jesus already has foreknowledge that this man is about to get out of the grave. He is literally going to change the circumstances for a whole village. He's going to change the circumstances for a whole family. So we know Jesus knows what he's going to do. God's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why cry? In other words, in our business crazed world, isn't that wasting his tears? Isn't that squandering his power? Isn't that kind of role playing? Is this theater? Does Jesus like theaters? Is he like you know you know does he like thespian club? You know what what in the world's going on here? Why is, is he is he trying to do something cool? so John could write it in the gospel to move people 2,000 years. What in the world is happening here? Why is Jesus crying in this? Don't waste time healing those people you know the outcome of, Jesus. Just help those who will pull their weight in the kingdom. Jesus, just come and heal those who will in turn serve others. Just heal those who will heal others. Only heal the legs, Jesus, that will run and share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Don't heal the legs of the person that's going to run back into a bed of adultery. Don't you dare heal the hands that are going to go back and touch another spouse and beat it. Don't you. Only, only reserve your energy, Jesus, for those that are going to reciprocate. Come on, be smarter than that, Jesus. Come on. Don't waste that. Don't squander your love on somebody that doesn't need it and will never reciprocate it. Uh, Don't only heal the hands that are on reach, the weak and the the feeble and the hurting, but don't squander your power on the selfish. Don't squander your power on the arrogant. Don't squander your power on the sinful or the adulterous. Why are you crying, Jesus? Is that not a question worth asking? Why in the world does Jesus cry? It's a question worth asking because it might change the way we live as a community. What are you saying, Craig? In fact, of all the people on the planet, it may be that Jesus is trying to tell us we're supposed to treat people differently than anyone else in the world. So I got a question for you. And before you jump and give me a quick answer, really think about it. Do you love people or do you love people's potential? Think about that. Think about it, though, in, the, in terms of Do you love a person's potential or do you love the person? Because the reality is we live in a potentially crazed society, correct? We are obsessed with potential. You got to move that dormant energy into kinetic energy. We post it on Facebook, make memes about it. Get it kinetic, release it. We love potential. Latent abilities. They're going to rise to the surface on the occasion. Which is always a fallacy because you never, you never rise to the occasion. You always perform at your level of preparation. Do you understand that, right? That's just a whole other sermon for another day. You don't rise to meet the occasion. But we're always about this potential. Potentially crazed culture. Think about it. We're crazy about potential, potential, potential. Athletics, we got to put our kids in athletics, run them around the world to get them releasing that potential, right? Kids in college, our coaches in college recruiting kids in sixth grade. We got, you know, I'm a Tennessee fan. We got the, the class of 2022, 23 uh, project, uh, uh, prospects already on the line. They're going to games when they can. They're dropping by middle schools and talking to kids. I mean, we are obsessed. We got the university systems where everybody's got to go to university, right? That's just the only way potential can be released in our world, right? I mean, we've got this all 
all these, all these desires that, that we are obsessed. It's like, a, it's like a, a matriculating down from the upper echelon of society where you get to a point where it's a job. It's headhunters. It's Shark Tank. I'm all like, you better bet your dollar dollar. I'm going to put some money on you unless you've got some potential. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It, it, who am I going to make an investment into? Who am I going to look at? Who's worth my time? Who's worth my focus? Who's worth my attention? And if we're not careful, folks, it begins to seep into our whole way of living and the way we even reach the laws and even help the hurting. We're looking for potential. Can I, I'm just sure glad that Jesus loved people more than he loved potential. I'm just so glad that Jesus in February 2002 did not see any potential, the lack thereof in a young man that was in Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. And he reached down in the midst of a miry clay and a pit of sin and he rescued me and he loved me at that moment. He loved me, not my potential. He loved me. Think of it. If Jesus was only about potential, think of how many people would have turned away. No, sir, you're not worth my time. No, ma'am, you're not worth my focus. I'm sorry, ma'am, you'll never serve me. You're not worth my power and attention. Back to the 12. That's not how it went. And listen, I'm concerned as a pastor, but I'm more concerned as a Christian at the stuff we say sometimes as believers, right? A cry for mercy will always capture the heart of God. Did you hear what I said? A cry for mercy will always capture the heart of God, who he is. And we got to go back to the scripture and see the extravagant, seemingly limitless love of Jesus Christ. We've got to be careful. We got to ask the question, why cry, Jesus? Why cry? Well, the answer to the question, we're going to let the Bible answer it, okay? The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself, right? So let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, 7, and let answer the question of why Jesus cried. Why did Jesus weep? And what's so amazing to me about this passage is 1 Corinthians 13, we know it is this this passage about us loving others. But understand me clearly. The word that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the word agape, the word for love, which is love that only originates in God. So listen to me. Actually, 1 Corinthians first and foremost is about understanding that God loves us first and the love that God loves us with. And you don't know even how to love until you understand his love. Are you with me? My parents lived many, many years away from Christ and their marriage went to a whole new level 20 years into marriage. People say, you know everybody as, as much as you're ever gonna know in 20 years into marriage, but their whole marriage changed. Why? Because they could not truly love someone until you understand his love. It's the same true for parents. I know it sounds weird, but we can't really love our parents. I know it's familial. It's called human love, but it's not a divine love until we understand his love, until we understand an agape love. And so what Paul is saying is you've got to understand this is God's kind of love. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Why does Jesus weep? The Bible says love never gives up. Never loses faith. This agape love, this unconditional love, this kind of God love, it never gives up. It never loses faith. The God kind of love never gives up. Are you serious? The God kind of love never loses faith. Are you serious? It's always hopeful. What are you saying, Paul? It always endures through every circumstance. You want to know why Jesus cried? You want to know why he healed the harmful? You want to know why he served the selfish? Because of his love. And 
listen to me. You better hear me today. The, the, his love for people and the exterior and the circumstances of people's life cannot change God's love. It cannot underestimate or cut under the, the legs of God's love. God endures with people, folks. He endures with people even to the final moment. His love continues to endure. His love continues to go after people. Why? Because it's not his will that any should perish. He's not lacking keeping his promises, First Peter says, but desires all men everywhere to repent. Oh yeah, man must make a decision. Man and woman must make a decision. That's the gospel we preach. But until a decision is made and a soul passes into eternity, God's love is available to all. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the dangerous thing a theologian or a nice professor can do today is change that word all in John 3.16. All means all. He loves the whole world. He loves everybody. His love is available for all nations, all people, all tribes, all tongues. But why does he weep? Why does Jesus weep? Because though he knows the future, the pain in the present is real, folks. And it moves him. It moves him to get involved. Don't squander your love, Jesus. Don't, don't weep with those who weep. Why? Because they're not going to serve you. Don't heal the broken and hurting if they're not grateful. It's not wasted. It's not squandered for God. In fact, let's just say this real quick. If, if we think that God's love can be squandered, we don't understand God because God can waste nothing. Why? Because God can't do anything that's inconsistent with his nature. And there's nothing in God's character that is wasteful or squandering. Nothing. So God is purposeful. God is intentional. What does that mean? Everything God does is on purpose. Did you hear me? It's not an accident. So what does that mean? It was intentional. That means Jesus cried on purpose. He healed on purpose. He healed the ugly. He healed the wicked. He healed the sinful on purpose. Why? To demonstrate his scandalous love. And it never ceases to amaze me, folks. Maybe you've never run into him. But you run in, I run into someone who's decided to follow Jesus. I'm not talking about just pray a prayer. But they've really decided to follow Jesus. And yet they question his love and his desire desire to do them good they still question whether or not he has a good heart for them I got news for you newsflash God does good for even those who don't believe how much more for those who believe how much more for those who love him how much more for those who are called according to his purpose God must function in consistency with his nature but listen Jesus is physically in no condition to go reach out to people his best friend just got his head cut off He's physically, emotionally, spiritually feeling like a place where he's ready to get away from people. He's going to get some time alone. He's grieving and hurting. But when he sees the people, he didn't put them in categories and try to figure out if they're grateful or holy or righteous. He just sees people, folks. He doesn't see people's potential. He doesn't see the lack of potential. He overlooks the past he overlooks their future why because catch this the love of God that's in him causes him to obsess over their today and their right now and says I've got to help them folks this is what God's desiring to do in us that we find people that are in need or broken and hurting and it's not about whether or not I make a decision it's that the love of God within me moves me to compassion I can't help myself I can't get off the hook when I see somebody that's hurt
hurting. Why? It's not because it's my source. It's because the love is coming from him, folks. And this cannot be taught. This must be experienced. The love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. This is what the church is missing. This is why we don't feel the bowels of compassion. When the Bible says Jesus was moved with compassion, it's the, it's the most intense longing and, and, and emotion that the Jewish culture could describe. And Jesus is saying, literally, my guts are weeping. My, my heart, my large intestine, my spleen, they're literally weeping. The, the inner bowels are being moved with compassion. I've got to help them right now. He had to help them. And friends, if you aren't there, if the love of God's not there in your life, let's just be honest, you've short-circuited the love of God somewhere. Because that's God's desire for his love. To where no longer you can let yourself off the hook when you see need. You let yourself off the hook when you see broken people. So what do we do? It's not about achieving more. It's about opening our hearts wide again today and saying, love of God, do in, do in me again what you desire to do. Lord, express fully through me your character, your nature, your love, your grace. In fact, if all the people you love know Jesus, you don't love enough people. I'm going to say it again. If all the people you know love Jesus, you don't love enough people. He desires to love through us. My question is this. Do we love people like this? Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, 10, and 11 says. Notice it's such a powerful text. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. That God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation substitute for sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, loved us like what? Loved us like this. If God so loved us like this, if you've been loved like this, you also ought to love one another like this. You hear the church? If you are loved like this, you need to go love others like this. And I wonder, I'm just asking, I wonder if we have been as adults somehow jaded with this culture of potential in America that's so observed and concerned with what people would do with my time or what people would do with my love and what they'll do with my focus and what they'll do with my attention and if they abuse it then I'm going to refuse it well Jesus is the exact opposite in fact I'm just saying the main reason you're sitting in church this morning is because God continued to give love even when you abused it if he only gave you love because you refused or you accepted it and never abused it he would have refused you a long time ago friend he knew you were going to abuse it and he kept on giving it and he kept on loving you and he kept on pouring his grace in you this is the love of God God keeps giving he keeps Keeps loving. You ever met those parents? And until you're a parent, you don't understand. I was youth pastor 12 years. You can meet those parents. And I would always have those kids in the youth group or they come around once every blue moon. And I'm talking about they royally messed up. You know what I'm saying? Like crazy sin. I'm not talking about coming in late for curfew. But kids that are meth, cocaine, drug addicts, dropping out of school. They can't keep them in rehab, cutting. Mental facilities. Psych wards, they're in just utter chaos. Or the opposite, they're, they're, they're just willfully rebellious. And you meet those parents, and what else am I supposed to think as a youth pastor, right? I'm just thinking, I'm thinking, kick them to the curb. Let them have it. Drop all those resources. 
right? I mean, I had no other way to think about it. And my sister, same way. My mom received a word four years earlier that, that God was going to take care of her and rescue her. And my mom had to finally surrender because she couldn't deal with it anymore. She, we would bring Jennifer to church, and we thought this was her moment to get saved. And she would bust out about, dear God, would you let them have it? And I would always think, parents, just let them have it until you have kids of your own, right? And you're like, oh, dear God, I agree with you. I agree with you. I love them. Just, just, just love them. Just keep giving them. Just keep praying. My own sister, just my mom just kept praying. Just kept believing. Why? Because although they're doing that's my baby right there. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep believing. And you know what? One night, I'm teaching at the school of discipleship. These two young men I actually taught in middle school. Full circle. Discovery right here at Free Chapel. Jonathan and Matthew. I'm teaching at school of discipleship on a Monday night. It's at 730 in the evening. And the Spirit of God pricked me and said, stop teaching and pray. And have the class pray for people that are in your family members that are lost. We just prayed. I didn't think another thing about it. Finish the class. I go home. I'm laying in my bed about 2 o'clock in the night. And I get a phone call. And my sister on the other line and she is screaming and I'm thinking what is in the world's happened and she's rebuking the devil in her house and she said she was sitting there on her couch she had just gone through a breakup of a relationship she had two dogs that got really calm she didn't know any scripture she knew Revelation 3 she said Craig I looked over and in my screen door I saw Jesus standing there knocking and he said to me Jennifer if you'll open the door I'll come in and dine with you and transform your life and she received Jesus Christ not in an altar not when other people are around why because God in his love works and my mom kept loving my dad kept loving they kept expressing I'm just saying folks his love is scary amazing it's amazing it's crazy God's love crazy type love so here's our challenge look at Romans chapter 12 I want to read one verse and I want you to notice if you will the present tense of this verse not past, not predicting the future, presuming the future. It's present tense right now. Let's read it. You ready? Rejoice with those who rejoice. You see that? Weep with those who weep. You know what God is saying? Meet people right now. Meet them now. Meet them right now. Reach out to them right now. Allow the love of God to be the right now love. No offense at all. No offense at all. But have any of you ever had someone that's close to you and your family? My grandparents both close. You've had someone close to you in your family and they've died. You know they went to the Lord and somebody, usually another believer, church member, they come to you and they do it. No offense and all good intention, but they come to you. And they start telling you about heaven, the hope of heaven. You're going to see him one day again. No offense. I know about heaven, but it hurts like hell right now. And I don't need you to tell me about heaven. I want someone to weep with me right now. I want someone to get down in the, in the issue with me right now and weep. I don't need you to predict or pre presume or project a future. I need you to weep with me right now. Folks, this is the temptation of our day. To let ministry become so impersonal and not reach people, not touch people. This is what happens when pastors get out of touch with people and they get out of touch with touching people they lose their senses why because this is not the model of Jesus he wants you what is what is he saying friends he's saying right here in the scripture we can all talk about the future but you must meet people right now overlooking their past over di dismissing and removing all of their future potential or the lack thereof and just help someone right now just helping them right now just meeting them right now. You ever meet Christians, they think, 
Oh, man, life is too serious. Come on, you ever make these? Sometimes people think, oh, life is too serious. I can't laugh. People are dying. Pestilence and disease, various diverse places, earthquakes, Matthew 24, fulfillment. Can't laugh in this day. Got to be serious. No, no, no. I'm going to free somebody up today. The Bible says, go ahead and laugh. You with somebody, and they're laughing about something, you need to laugh with them. You need to enjoy the moment, and you laugh. Why? Because you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. He said, rejoice with those who rejoice. If somebody's laughing, you better laugh. Over your dead body, do you not need to laugh? You laugh with them. You celebrate the moment. You celebrate life. Why? But over our dead body, the same is true on the other side. If somebody's coming to you, and they're hurting, and they're grieving, and they're they're, 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 in, they're in difficulty, and, and they're, they're hurting deeply, and they're trying to move on. Don't spend your whole conversation talking about, oh, it's going to get better, honey. Sun will shine again. It's going to get better in the future. It's, it's, I, know, I know it's got to be better in the end. No, well, right now, it's not better. It sucks. It hurts like crazy. The clouds are in front of the sun. I can't see any way left, right, forward. And, and God, oh, he's wanting us, what, to, to weep with those people. This is why... Why did Jesus weep? He knows he's about to resurrect him because his love can't do anything but identify with somebody. His love can't do anything but be moved with compassion. This is the present tense love of God. He was moved. Weep with those who weep. So cry. Please grieve. Love. Pray, bear all things, endure all things, hope for the best, believe the best. But if somebody's hurting, please grieve with your friend. That's why Jesus wept. He grieved with his friends. He cried with his friends. Why? Because that's how his love actually is. That's what his love is. That's who his love is. He said there's a time to laugh. There's a time to cry. A time to grieve. Jesus understood that. This is the love of God. Listen, friends, God's love works, doesn't it? God's love works. I wish I could infect some people with such a contagious confidence that his love overcomes every obstacle. What would happen if this church got a hold of that kind of infection? His love's unconquerable. His love's insurmountable. His love cannot be even comprehended fully. That's what he said in Ephesians 3. It's impossible. It works. God's love works. And listen to me, folks. We live in a day and age where people communicate differently than they've ever communicated with each generation. And I want you to understand that we're going to reach a generation that we're in front of. We're called to reach and steward. We've got to realize that truth is absolute, but the gospel is fluid. What does that mean? means the gospel feels whatever vessel it finds. Oh, that doesn't mean truth changes. It's the gospel's fluid. Of course it is. That's why Jesus in Mark 7 is about to heal a deaf man and a blind man. How in the world do you heal a deaf man and a blind man? Well, he takes him off to the side, and the Bible says he performs a little sign language on him, touches his tongue, spits down in his ears. Why? Because when Jesus desires to heal somebody, he wants to heal somebody in a language they understand. And it's, nothing, it's no different today. It's no different today. He desires to communicate. And let me tell you, the way we're going to identify with the generation and the people we're called to reach is by loving them. And it can't be by the source of yourself. 
you can take this God kind of a love, and when you get it so deep down inside of you, then what happens is you begin to love people. You can abuse it all you want, but I won't stop giving it because it's not coming from me. It's not coming from me. It's coming from him, his kind of love. And folks, when that kind of love, that revelation gets inside of you and explodes in you, then you can't keep quiet. You share his love all, everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. I'm going to ask just Rebecca to come. You guys know I love the medicine field. I've always been fascinated with the human body and surgery and medicine, physicianship. Dr. Richard Selzer writes in a book called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. He writes about an experience that he had as a physician, and it demonstrates so profoundly the amazing God, or love that God has for us. And I want you to listen to this. This is a personal experience as a surgeon. He said, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsied, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I asked myself. He and this wry mouth I have made. Who gaze at each other so generously, so greedily, touch each other so greedily. The young woman speaks to the surgeon. Will my mouth always be like this, she asked. Yes, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man, the husband, smiles. I like it. It's kind of cute. Unmindful, he begins to bend to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close as the surgeon, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works. I just pray, church, that in all of the pain, all of the failures, all of the weaknesses, all of the diseases, all of the idiosyncrasies, all of the sins in humanity, that our lives still show that God's love still works. No matter where you come from, no matter how messed up you are, God will turn his lips and kiss you right on the lips, addict. God will turn his lips this way and kiss you right on the lips. If you're adulterous or fornicator or out there or pornography, Addict. Whatever it is, God's love still works. There's a lot of severed hearts. There's a lot of severed minds in Atlanta. There's a lot of severed lives. There's a lot of severed families, a lot of severed parents, a lot of severed kids. And I'm here to say, may we be a church that shows that God's kiss still works. That God's love will turn left, right, over the top, whatever he's got to do to put his lips on the lips of hurting humanity. He loves them. He desires the best for them. He is for them. May we be a people that says, our God loves you. And listen, first, there's got to be a revelation that this is how God loves you. And once that revelation gets here, I'm not talking about here. It gets here. Boom! Fourth of July goes off in you. And then it's time to take this love to the streets of Atlanta, the streets of our neighborhood, the streets of our city, and declare that whosoever come, come. I know you may be an addict. I know you may be messed up. I know you may be hurting. But God will still welcome you with a kiss, young man. God will still welcome you with a kiss, young lady. God will reach you. I, I, I pray that we would be a church that more is more in love with people than we are people's potential. That we're in love. That God causes us to get in love with people. That
that we are literally moved to love and compassion with the city around us. That we would be a church that loves the Lord's table. We would be a church that loves our neighbor like ourselves. That we would be a church that is so eager and desirous for opportunity to share the gospel. A love that overlooks shortcomings in people and finds strength. A love that believes the best, hopes the best, encourages the best, endures through all things. This is the kind of love, agape love, that God desires to do. And God says, you know what? Even if people abuse it, I'll keep giving it. Even if you abuse it, I'll keep giving it. So why don't you take the same posture? Even if somebody abuses it, I'll keep giving it. Why? Because I'm not worried about its source running up. The source is the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of me, who is the very fountain of love, who's the fountain of agape, that God can use us like he's never used us before, that you would have such confidence. His love's unconquerable. I don't care what I face. His love's insurmountable. I don't care what I face. His love is is literally unconditional. This is his love. I just imagine what God would do with the church that believe that. Could you imagine? But I believe something with all my heart. If people in our city could see this kind of love, they would never be the same again. But listen, Holly, they don't know about it. Folks, they can't see it. They don't know it exists. When someone's hurting comes to you and says, Will I always be like this? Yeah, the nerve's been cut. Because of sin, you're always going to have some kind of complication. But don't worry, his kiss still works. <laughs> Woo! Oh, man, I'm telling you. Folks, I don't know how it's to do it. This is a hard message to teach because it's not really a message. It's, a, it's an encounter. It's a, it's a pouring out. It's an experience where we encounter His love and it moves us in the depths of who we are. That we're not able to be the same way. We're not able to live the same way. Why? Because His love moves us. His love moves us. And too many times in the church we're trying to teach something that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. Supernaturally do in us. Folks, if we're not praying for our lost friends and family right now, how in the world do you think God would ever trust us to see a city come to be to know Him, folks? I mean, we're not even burdened for our own lost family members sometimes. How in the world are we going to see a, a city come to know Him? We need, again, the love of God poured out in our hearts. We need to be moved with compassion the way Jesus was moved with compassion. As the band comes, can I pray for us, Jesus, right now in heaven? Would you let us be the kind of church, God, that shows Atlanta that your love works in every situation. Your love works in every circumstance. Would you help us, God, to look beyond our own assumption and presumptions that we make of people? Could you help us to look beyond the exterior of people, what they've done, how they perform, and just help us to fall in love with people like you love them? Just help us to fall in love with them, God. Forgive us, Lord, if at times we've concluded after we've poured out that that was a waste, that was squandered. Forgive us, Lord. None of it was a waste. Nothing is a waste. You're always intentional. I pray that, God, we would continue to pour out, continue to pour our lives out, as Paul said, like a drink offering before you. That, Lord, even if the world says it's a waste, then I pray we would be the most wasteful people. I pray we'd waste more time on people, waste more time on lost people, waste more time on the hurting, waste all of our lives. Waste all of our lives, Lord, on those who desperately need your love. Just waste it, God, whatever it is. Help us to pour. Help us to invest. Help us to make disciples, God, who would go out and reproduce, God, to see your kingdom advance in this city around 
the earth. God, help us, Lord, to look past the crooked smile and see the hurting heart. Would you say that with me? Say, dear God, help me to look past the crooked smile and see the hurting heart. Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.